0: Open your Bibles now to 1 Peter, chapter 3. 1 Peter, chapter 3. We're going to sort of overlap uh, with one verse, moving on into our studies of 1 Peter and remembering, uh, especially to let you know if you're visiting with us today, we've been working through 1 Peter. The reason is not only because it's a part of God's Word, but because uh, this letter was Peter's effort to encourage and equip suffering Christians when persecution was beginning to take place in the Roman world of Christians. And that persecution was going to intensify from the time that Peter wrote this and beyond. We know from uh, history beyond that, that that was the case. And we're doing that for ourselves because we are beginning to feel the effects, we Christians are, of pushback, opposition, ridicule. And this opposition to the Christian faith is nothing new in history, but it is relatively new to, to people like us who live in the United States because the Christian faith has been given the wonderful privilege of being uh, disseminated without uh, a lot of opposition. But we know the tide is changing with that. How can we be prepared if we are going to face times of, of a harsh treatment, worse than what we're already hearing about? I'm not saying that's definitely going to happen. I can't predict that. But the trend is there, and it's going to take a mighty work of God to reverse that, which is a very important reason we should be in prayer concerning that. So we want to equip ourselves to be able to to accept the fact that if we're going to live for Christ, a lot of people are not going to like that. The government is not going to like that. And we also need to equip Our children and our grandchildren for this very thing we need to equip ourselves so that we in turn can equip them because it could well be that our children and grandchildren are going to face a much different spiritual climate in our nation than what we are used to we who are older so that's why we're doing that and we're going to pick up our reading at verse 18 now, if you were here last week, you know that that's the one verse we looked at last week was verse 18. But the verse doesn't end with a period. It ends with a comma. So we're we're going to look at the rest of the chapter uh, in the light of what verse 18 says. So let's read, or you follow as I read, verse 18 to the end of the chapter, verse 22 of 1 Peter 3. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. I certainly don't know this for a fact, but if I had to guess, I would say there are very few, well, could be no preachers, that are preaching on this passage on Easter Sunday. It's probably one that no pastor would ever have thought about. But this is, number one, the next passage in our studies in 1 Peter. And number two, it mentions the resurrection not once, but twice. Once directly and once one somewhat indirectly. And so I thought, thank you, Lord that it worked out that way. Believe me, I didn't plan it that way, but that's the way it was working out. So we're gonna take a stab at that and continue looking here. As the apostle Peter continues his instructions to the Christians in Asia Minor, he is still stressing the vital importance of standing firm in the gospel of Christ especially since they were beginning to experience hostility for their faith from the Roman authorities. In this section of chapter 3, Peter lays out the facts of what God has done to provide his readers with strength and hope through Christ. As I said, we looked at verse 18 last week, and that gave us one segment of the work of Christ in providing us with the salvation we need to faithfully live in such a hostile, increasingly hostile environment in our world. But there are other aspects of of what Christ has done for us that provide us the basis of confidence that we will prevail even if we are wrongly treated we will ultimately prevail over all of Christ's and our enemies. So as a way to pick up from where we finished in verse 18, we're going to return to that verse, especially the end of that verse, to see Christ as the ultimate victim for our salvation. And then we're going to note the other aspects of Christ's redemptive work that are mentioned here, to show us that he has now become the ultimate victor over sin and death for us. So look at that first part there. Christ was the ultimate victim. Isn't that what we saw last week? This beautiful summary of the gospel in one verse. For Christ also suffered once for sins, The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. I mentioned last week that that last phrase, made alive in the Spirit, I believe is best interpreted to mean the Spirit with a capital S. He was made alive through the work of the Holy Spirit, vivifying him giving him new life that he might be raised from the dead. Actually, all three persons are mentioned in various parts of the scripture. The father raised him from the dead. Jesus himself had the power to raise himself from the dead. And the Holy Spirit, Romans eight eleven says, raised him from the dead. And it's because of that verse in Romans that uh, I believe that this is, and the context too, that I believe this is best seen as that he not only Uh, was made, not only put to death in the flesh, excuse me, but he was made alive by or in the spirit, the Holy Spirit. What Christ did on the cross is a description of who he was. He was the ultimate victim. Did Jesus do anything sinful or wrong that that merited his execution? No. Remember how Isaiah describes the life of Christ and being a suffering servant? And there's one verse there that that I thought was especially applicable to what we're looking at here. It's in uh, chapter 53 of Isaiah verse 8. And it says by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Oppression and judgment. Christ was judged to be guilty. We read in the Gospels of Pilate who said that he found no fault in Jesus. He had not seen any proof, any indication that Jesus actually had broken a law in the civil realm. And he had the authority from the emperor himself to say that he was... Not guilty, or that he was guilty. And of course, he was talked into uh, letting him be executed, letting Jesus be executed instead of Barabbas, a murdering thief. He was the victim, but he was unjustly declared to be and made to be the victim as if he had committed some heinous crime. We know that Jesus was the God-man. He never sinned. It's hard sometimes, the more we think of that, to get our heads around that, that he could live an entire life from birth to this very point in his life when he was about 33 years old and having never sinned, never sinned in his mind, never sinned with his words, never sinned with his actions, not once. He was therefore an innocent victim. But he was made to be the victim in God's plan as a part of our salvation. And so we need to rejoice in that. I just looked up in, in uh, Webster's dictionary, just curious as to see what definition I would find of victim. Sometimes Webster's is in, in line with what uh, the words would mean in scripture, but not always. But in this case, Webster defines vic- a victim as one that is injured, destroyed, or sacrificed under any of various conditions. Well, that gives us a little bit more of an idea of what it means to be a victim. Have you ever been a victim of something? Sure, others have done something wrong at our expense, and justice is not always done in that case, but we Christians remember, justice will be meted out perfectly by the judge of all the earth who will do what is right, as Abraham once said. Did you hear this week about the woman who was trapped under an ice avalanche. There were several people there on a, some kind of an expedition, hiking and, and whatnot, and then there was this avalanche, and a large part of it was, was ice and not snow. And a chunk of that ice fell on a woman who was in this group. It was a very, very dangerous Condition or situation that she was in Well, another woman who was there in the group Decided she was going to to crawl in there and see if she could get this woman out She got in there. She was able to Push the woman out from where she was to rescue her But then there was a shift in the ice and the one who rescued this woman herself was killed She sacrificed herself for the one who was there to begin with. This woman became the the victim of that, that event. She laid down her life for another, and obviously she was willing to do that. She knew the risk, I'm sure, that she was taking. Verse 18 tells us that Christ voluntarily, I add the word, voluntarily died for our sins by his death on the cross in order to bring us to God. That's how we get to God. It's through the the work of Christ on the cross. He became the victim in our place. Well, Christ is the ultimate victim. We hear stories, like the one I just told you, pretty often about people who are voluntarily willing to take on the cost of whatever it is they're trying to do on behalf of another. And it's always a a wonderful story, sad but wonderful story. But Christ is the ultimate victim. Nobody has ever become the victim like Christ did. The one person who didn't deserve punishment to be constituted as a victim would have been Jesus Christ. Because all of us are sinners. You can find things wrong with us, but not with Jesus. Now, the other thing I want you to notice here, and this, it's a little more to it here, obviously, because we move on to, from the end of verse 18 to the end of the chapter there in verse 22 Christ is now no longer the victim. He is the victor. He is the conqueror. He is the one that has not only died for sin, but he has overcome death. And he's done these wonderful things that are mentioned here in the rest of the verses. When Jesus died on that torturous tree, he set in motion a series of acts that provide every believer in Jesus Christ with the power to live victoriously over sin and death. And we work through some of those key uh, events and and acts that Jesus accomplished for us when we go through uh, one of our creeds or um, confessions of faith. Often on Sundays we will confess our faith together, usually with the Apostles' Creed, Usually around Christmas, we use the Nicene Creed, but all those solid biblical creeds that the church has used for many centuries deal with these very things. He suffered, He died, He was buried, He rose again, He ascended into heaven, He's sitting at the right hand of God. Peter stresses that here, and I think it's wise. To do that, because you and I tend to maybe put an overemphasis, if that's even possible, by by talking mostly about Christ dying and Christ rising again, which is good. But what about the rest? What about what he did after he rose from the dead? Did he just walk away into the sunset? He didn't walk away. He rose. Arose into heaven. And he was seated at the right hand of God. And those things are significant. The resurrection is mentioned here, as I said, somewhat indirectly at the end of verse 18. Made alive in the Spirit, capital S. But then specifically he mentions it in verse 21. There he says, talking about baptism, but at the end of the verse... He talks about the being uh, baptism as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, all of this is of a piece. It's all tied together. It's, it's really a unit where every one of these components or aspects of the redemptive work of Christ is vital, and they all hang or fall together. Remember the note of victory that Paul sounded in 1 Corinthians 15, near the end of the chapter, verse 54 through 57. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, he's talking about the resurrection, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, notice the victory term here, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victor has overcome being a victim to provide you and me victory. Not victory in the sense of of, uh, I had COVID and now I'm healed. Not victory in the sense that you've been able to put away a nasty habit. All of those things are good in themselves, of course. But we're talking about ultimate things here. Victory over sin and death and hell itself. In Paul's case in 1 Corinthians 15, victory over the grave through Christ. And then, having mentioned that, he goes on and talks about proclamation in verses 19 and 20. This is part of the, one of the hardest passages in the New Testament to interpret. And here I am daring to even talk about it. I almost want to put uh, uh, some kind of a thing where I can get out, off the hook if, if I'm proven to be wrong. If I'm wrong... I'll be happy to acknowledge that. I've read the, the commentators. I've read uh, the Bible scholars. And there's there are several ways of interpreting this that are all plausible. It's not like there's only one interpretation that some people have come up with. But the Lord doesn't speak with forked tongue. The Lord has one meaning in mind. And it's the job of people like me to make sure that We're getting as close to that true meaning as we possibly can. So look at that carefully. In which he went, after his resurrection, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Proclamation. Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And in saying that Jesus went, we have to be real careful. Did Jesus himself in his resurrected body or even before or after that, did Jesus at some point go and proclaim to the spirits in prison, whoever they are, We're trying to figure that out. Well, it's really not Jesus doing the proclaiming. It's the spirit of Christ. Paul had already talked about, I mean, Peter had already talked about that in chapter 1, verse 11, where he tells us that Christ spoke through the prophets, which makes perfect sense because we know that prophets and apostles spoke the word of God as the word of God came to them. All right, in verse 11, chapter 1, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them, the prophets, was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That's what we're talking about here. Some of the subsequent glories to Christ's death and resurrection. The Spirit of Christ proclaimed God's messages in Old Testament times, is what Peter says in chapter 1, verse 11. And so we look at that, and we realize that we don't need to think in terms of somehow this means that Christ himself went to hell and preached to imprisoned spirits. Those imprisoned spirits are already there for good. Once you get to hell, as the story of the rich man and Lazarus tells us, you you can't get out. Once we die, we are eternally either with Christ in heaven or with the devil and his fallen angels and all others who didn't believe in Christ in hell. Very clear when you read the Bible that that's true. All of these things are real. He really rose from the dead. Hell is real. But here, he's not saying Jesus went to hell. There's nowhere in the Bible that, that clearly states that. So when we say the Apostles' Creed, and we say he descended into hell, usually, I'm not even sure I remember if we do it this way, I think we do, usually churches will have an asterisk at that point and explain that hell isn't what we typically think of. The word there, is the word for the place of the dead. Hades. So that sort of explains that. Did Christ go to hell to preach to the spirits in prison? No. Probably it is telling us, notice I gave that disclaimer, probably it means that Christ through the spirit proclaimed victory to the fallen Spirits and angels which he's going to talk about He proclaimed victory it was it could have been like this almost like um, Like that basketball player did in the women's final the other night when she was sort of taunting uh, the uh, opposition Caitlin Clark she was taunting her uh, because Caitlin Clark had done a little of that at at some point, too, taunting her because we've won the national championship here. You didn't. I guess it would be kind of hard not to gloat a little bit. I wouldn't say that the spirit of Christ was gloating uh, to those fallen spirits and angels. You know, hey, we won, you lost. But in some way, that's what was taking place proclaiming victory to the enemies. Now, you might think that's a stretch. I don't think it's out of line with what scripture teaches. So you can ponder that and we can discuss that if you'd like to. And then going on, we learn here, of course, that Noah comes into the picture. Noah was a kind of prophet because we read that Noah was one who proclaimed or preached to the people around him, to his neighbors, telling them he was a preacher of righteousness, we read in scripture. And he was telling them God is going to save some from this terrible flood and that's why I'm building this ark. Are you going to join me on the ark? And of course nobody did. It's not a stretch to say that probably some of those neighbors helped him build the ark. But did they really believe in the coming judgment of God? No. Therefore, Peter says, a few. Specifically eight. More specifically, four couples. Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives. They are the ones who, as a covenant family, trusted in God's word and did what God told them to do. And they escaped by means of the water lifting up the boat above the destruction that was going to take place. And then all of that is followed with baptism. No, I'm not about to delve into that subject too much other than to say... Peter's just tying a a comparison here. The ark was a type of our baptism under Christ. We had people who were saved by the waters of judgment with the ark. Baptism represents our being saved. And the waters of, of baptism are Indicative of our being washed and cleansed from our sin. We are saved through what baptism represents. And that's why Peter says, baptism saves you. Don't read that without looking at the rest of what it's saying. What? We're saved by being baptized? No. Though there are those who believe that we are saved by being baptized. We call that baptismal regeneration. That is, when you are baptized, God regenerates your heart, and you're saved. The Roman Catholic Church, that's one of their main doctrines. Baptismal regeneration. And I think in a lot of Protestant churches, there are people who think, you know, if I'm not saved, God's not going to be happy with me, and he's not going to let me in heaven. Tell that to the thief on the cross. There wasn't time for him to be baptized but he was saved because he indicated his trust in Christ. Well, baptism then is important because it is a sign of the saving work of Christ. We are united to Christ. The Holy Spirit will work in our hearts as we grow in our understanding of the gospel and believe in him with his blessing. So that connection then is very important. And then, following that, verse 22, the ascension is mentioned, just very fast mentioned. In the middle of verse, uh, in verse 22, who has gone into heaven? Through the resurrection of Christ, he was raised from the dead, and then, 40 days later, the ascension. 40 days after he was raised. The ascension into heaven. What's the significance of that? It's the significance of Jesus being installed on his royal throne. Sit at my right hand. Psalm 110 begins with that verse. Sit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You see what's happening there? Jesus now is in the place of supreme authority and rule. He is the Lord over all things the significance of the ascension from earth to heaven is largely lost on many Christians today. We all, like I said earlier, we think about the, the death of Christ, the birth of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection. Don't forget the ascension. That was the culminating act of Jesus' redemptive work for us. And what happens there? He's in charge of bringing all of his and our enemies into subjection to him. He's conquering them. He's doing that this very day. Every time a heart is transformed by faith and repentance in the gospel of Christ, Satan loses another of his soldiers heaven gains as a soldier of Christ and all of the evil notice how he says that he's gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers having been subjected to him that takes us back to what I said of the preaching Noah was really doing that he was preaching victory you know We're going to be victors getting into the ark. Anybody else coming? No, thank you. We'll stay here. Flood. I believe it when I see it. That's probably what they were thinking. They saw it. They saw it and they perished. So many times in Scripture, a number of times, We read about the fact that there are, I'm I'm using a contemporary term here. There's really only two superpowers in the world. And one of those superpowers is stronger than the other superpower. Now, I'm not talking about China and the United States. We Probably have a good debate on which one of those is the, the ultimate superpower. The two superpowers are the kingdom of darkness and their leader, if you want to call him that, the devil, and the kingdom of light, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ is our Lord, our leader, if you will. What does Christ rule over all things mean for us? Let me just state these for you before we finish. (laughs) What does Christ rule over all things mean for us, for you and for me? It means God has the whole universe under his control. That's really true. Even though you look around and you listen to what's going on and you say, how can that be? It's always been this way. Ever since the fall of man, the world has been in chaos. And because we live in a, in a world now where everything that happens in the world is readily available for us to know about much more than we really need. TMI, right? Too much information. Too much of the wrong information. Christ is in total control of what appears and is to us chaos. And he's going to make it all right one day. There's not going to be any chaos in the new heavens and the new earth and we look forward to that as believers. It means the whole universe is under his control. It also means that you, Christian, have no reason to fear. Jesus was, I mean, Peter was telling his readers that. Look, I know that you're, you're receiving a lot of bad treatment, but listen, you don't have to be afraid of the Roman Empire. You don't have to be afraid of anything because you know who's going to win In the end, it also means that all the powers of spiritual darkness will be defeated forever. You read Ephesians 6, 10 through 20 again about spiritual warfare. You read what's going on behind the scenes. What's going on that the newspapers don't want to tell you about? You know, when when God does amazing things, you know, when, when... People come to faith in Jesus, all kinds of things that are good. They don't want, that's not something they want to talk about. They want to talk about bad stuff. But the powers of darkness are behind everything bad that goes on in this world. And so it means one other thing it means we can live now with confidence that we are on the Lord's side. Or better, the Lord is on our side. And we can overcome the temptations to sin and the discouragement of wickedness by using the means of grace that God has given to us, the Word of God, prayer, earnest, serious, biblical prayer, corporately and individually, and worshiping together with the fellowship of God's people like we're doing today. It's wonderful for me to be able to stand here and see you worshiping here because of your love for Christ. And you know where to find Christ in his word in a powerful way. It's through worshiping together. We will enjoy the fact that death will be destroyed and instead we will enjoy life eternal with Christ and all his people. So think think in these terms. Jesus Christ, who was the ultimate victim in innocently but willingly dying for our sins, in spite of Satan's attempts to destroy him, has become the ultimate victor. And he's in the process now of putting all of Satan's, all of God's enemies under the feet of Christ. That's a, a picture of conquest taken from the Old Testament. Look at what Christ has done for you. Look at what Peter's telling you here. Christ has done all of this for all of his people, all of those who are trusting in him alone. The question is, what will you do with him? Let's pray. Lord, We thank you that we serve a risen savior who is the ultimate victor. We thank you that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. through the one who gave himself for us. We have no power to overcome the dark designs of Satan, where he tries to pull us down, but we have power from heaven. And your spirit working in us can enable us to turn from sin and to turn to obedient, righteous living because of your love for us and our love in return to you. Help us, we pray, to remember who is ultimately victorious in this world and remember it, Lord, for our own good, but even more for your glory.